everybody. It's another extra credit edition of We Built It That Way. I'm Jordan. I'm AJ. And we are here with the second installment of, uh, I guess, kind of a reading series where each time we pick something we read that stood out to us in one way or another and we thought would make a good jumping off point for a conversation. AJ came up with this article and I think that on the face of it, it's, it's an interesting read, but it's a goldmine for conversation points about how we think about affordable housing, our economic development practices, zoning laws and their on the ground impact, our attitudes towards the ecological landscape, Yeah, so the the article I took a look at was written by Colleen O'Connor Grant for Shelter Force, which is a great source for information about housing specifically, but it always um, opens up into bigger situations and considerations. Um, The title of the article is, Are Urban Planners Staying Silent on Climate Gentrification? And while the article is, as it sounds, targeting planners in particular, I think it really is a pretty universally applicable article because it doesn't just beg questions about the ethics and the practices of planners on these types of projects. I think even more than that, it shines a light on the ethics and practices of us as people and members of our communities towards one another. Yeah, I think that's extremely well said. And I think the the author is is talking to planners because as she notes, planners tend to be in many cases the only people working within town halls that have this kind of more expansive experience with and education on the variety of of factors that go into shaping what a town or a city physically looks like and also have to have a pretty good understanding of, of history and power relations too. For sure. And it really urges planners and I really think by extension, all of us to approach these types of situations, not just from a very technical approach of checking the boxes and making sure, you know, the applicable requirements are met, but really thinking more big picture thinking about the impacts that different types of projects have on the greater community, who benefits, who is harmed, and what it does to the environment. That point, I think, is critical because there is, in a lot of aspects of society, maybe an over-focus on technical details and data and, well, what does the data say? Where do the data lead us? And it can obscure our responsibility to bring an ethical lens, to bring our values and say, based on what's important to us, that communities should be equitable places where everyone has opportunities for growth, for relationships, opportunities to thrive. If we make it a conversation about technical details, about rules, about data, we can miss that. We can sort of trick ourselves. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. Or, or in the way that the author talks about here, we, it's, it's almost like an opportunity to stay silent on the bigger questions. Correct. It's important. Those technical elements are important, but they are never the entire story. And, you know, it, planning in communities is, is a very difficult place to be. You are 
in the middle of everything. And by that, I mean, you are caught between elected officials and residents. You are caught between the development community and and taxpaying citizens that have expectations. There's a lot of different groups that are all pushing their own points of view. And planners are often stuck in the middle and tend to try to sidestep those situations and try to keep the job more technical than political. Mm -hmm. But that really just isn't something that's realistic in this day and age. And the responsibility that you have as an official taking on this level of review responsibility, making recommendations, really requires um, a more assertive approach to looking at these kinds of projects. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Right. And as this article does a great job of pointing out, the technical is political. It might not feel political, mm-hmm. but it's all it's all based on decisions that are made uh, from a set of assumptions and values. And that's kind of the angle that we take with every single one of these episodes is we, we can always work backwards, sort of peel back the layers on what may be previously invisible as like, where do these things come from? Do they Are they getting the outcomes that we'd want if we were starting right now? Well, if not, we, we look at the system. We take a look at the system as a whole. This, we constructed the system as people, and that, that should empower us right, to think about the way forward. So enough of that. Let's get into the specifics of this article. And I'm just going to give a little uh, brief snippet from the introduction to this piece, uh, which is set in New Jersey. So here we go. New Jersey's Holmdel Township settled a seven-year battle over its fair housing obligations and subsequently planned 300 low-income housing units to be placed on wetlands and flood-prone lots. This occurred not in the 1950s, but during the pandemic. And less than a decade after Superstorm Sandy brought flooding and devastation statewide. Initially, the units were to be sited at Bell Works, which is a former corporate campus, and it's now a gigantic redevelopment project. Instead, the units were moved off campus uh, with the approval of the township council. So in January, Holmdel, that's the town, filed with the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection for a waiver to develop a wetland lot, which is uh, one of the new locations for some of the low-income housing units. Just a sidebar, wetlands are not suitable places for development under any circumstances, both because they're inhospitable to development itself and they're massively important features of the landscape for hydrology and wildlife and and all kinds of things. So transferring the quote-unquote affordable income developments to precarious circumstances should have raised red flags, it appears not to have, which is... Brings us to the thrust of the article, which is the topic of climate gentrification. Yeah. So Sheila Lakshmi Steinberg of the University of Massachusetts Global describes climate gentrification as valuing certain properties over others, specifically based on a property's ability to accommodate settlement and infrastructure in the face of climate change. Of course, this deepens racial and socioeconomic divides as areas of land that cannot withstand these changes are left, of course, to the less affluent, as in this case. All right. Well said. And I think even 
the term climate gentrification assumes sort of a baseline understanding of gentrification, which is its own topic filled with a lot of maybe sometimes miscommunications and controversy over the definition. I think we can maybe leave that particular conversation for another time of other types of gentrification, but we're speaking of the uneven distribution of resources and investments that always inevitably leave the the most marginalized with table scraps pushed further away from places of work and always given the, the largest burden on moving around and living in a community. So um, AJ, where should we begin? What's something that stood out to you from this article? Well, I think one of the first things that we have to tackle and discuss a little bit is the way that we continually use systems and policies to create outcomes that are inequitable. So this has been a theme of several of the different topics that we've addressed, Mm -hmm. where we, as you said at the beginning of the episode, we create these systems, these processes, these regulations, these frameworks for developing our communities. And we don't often enough look back and say, are we accomplishing what we set out to accomplish? Um, This is a blatant example of absolutely not. In no way are we accomplishing anything that is fruitful for the community. So I think that's one of the, the first things. We have to get to a place in our society where we understand, I think, that Something that is unintentional or unanticipated does not remove responsibility and fault. And I think too often that's a crutch. Well, we Mm -hmm. didn't realize this was going to happen. Um, We really couldn't see the impacts of it until later. Uh, We hear these types of comments periodically from you know, frontline people that are employed by municipalities, from politicians, from uh, developers, but it really doesn't eradicate our responsibilities. And if we don't ever move forward towards a more robust realization, acceptance and commitment to that type of approach, this will continue to be a problem. And there's a reason that the author stated This didn't happen in the 1950s. It happened during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. because if you took any kind of timelines out of the article and read it, you would swear that it was something that happened in the 1950s, because it just is such an antiquated, thoughtless approach that that created such harm. And the fact that we're still perpetuating these types of things is a clear signal that Not only have we not learned our lesson, in many instances, we obviously don't want to learn the lessons. Right. We've been good at tricking ourselves for a long time that the time of the 1950s and the 1960s is behind us. The time of segregation is a thing of the past. And we're progressive now. And we have the tools at our disposal. And I don't think we like to think that we have decisions and are taking decisions that perpetuate inequity. That's a yucky feeling. And I think you, you hit it on the nose when, when you said that that's like an intentional way of wording because we don't like to confront and we made we are made uncomfortable to confront just how little progress we may um, have made. One thing that stands out to me is I think there's often this notion that city or town government is unresponsive 
to the needs of many people who live there. And what this example makes clear, and this is just, you know, plucking one example from thousands across the country probably, is that this town in particular is responsive to the desires of its wealthiest and most well-resourced residents. It is responsive to the desires of the developers and the landowners, which are going to make a lot of money from the redevelopment of that corporate campus. And one of the, the ways that they're responsive is by using these, um, they have these payment in lieu uh, structures, basically, and I think AJ, you could probably speak well to this, but that allow the requirements that developers build a certain proportion of housing that is, is at a reduced rate. And instead of having that intermixed into the development where many jobs might be located, you can just move it off site to another spot. Yeah, we see that structure in a lot of different elements of development and communities. You know, you see that used in things like uh, parkland dedication. You see it used with things like streets and other infrastructure. And the thought always is, well, we're getting the equivalent amount of dollars so that the municipality can spend those dollars in the place it knows is the best for them to go. Mm -hmm. And most people would not really push harder on that rationale. I early stages of my career, I was certainly guilty of that too. And you have to look at some of the follow through or lack thereof to really understand that that doesn't give you the outcomes that you might tout that it can give you. It it really just isn't leading us and towards a place of progress. It's leading certain parts of the community towards progress. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's retaining power balances that currently exist. It's perpetuating them into the future. Correct. And power doesn't like to cede power. No. Powers, Austin, powers. I mean, we can start to get into this. There's a whole web of issues that go into creating this inequitable outcome where the new so-called affordable development is placed on a wetland or in a flood-prone area, which... First of all, it means it's lower value land that they can not consider this too big of a loss, right? Putting like lower rent units on like a high value land. There's just this kind of contempt, not only for the people who are going to be living here. One component was a sanitation plan for hundreds of units that would have trash pickup every two weeks. Correct. Which is absurd and would not be acceptable in any other part of this uh, affluent town. Right. But there's the same level of contempt and maybe we don't have to have them compete. They're just, there's this, also this contempt for the natural landscape, for the hydrology and the ecology of the area. This development has no business occupying the land that it does from a conservation standpoint, just as well as from a social standpoint. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's all in service of keeping the most wealthy people in the community happy and, and not bothered. Correct. And, you know, that also extends into this notion of how we utilize economic development um, incentives for a variety of, of uses, including but not limited to housing. And But for now, you know, suffice it to say that this traditional approach to economic development is really devoid of consideration for community-wide 
improvements for community-wide benefits, um, for community-wide health in a, mm-hmm. in a number of different areas, because health in this traditional approach is really all about the dollars and cents. Yeah. That are not proportionally distributed in any way, that are not proportionally beneficial in any sort of way. And in the article, she actually uses the phrase, um, a style that's agnostic to the needs of residents of a certain class and or mm-hmm. race. Yep. And so it's kind of a two-part issue. Not only is there obviously a huge problem to this being agnostic to certain subgroup of our community, there's also the second part of pursuing the types of incentives and projects and decisions that benefit in the grand scheme of things, a handful of residents rather than forgoing those projects in lieu of projects that actually have benefits that span the entire community and all subgroups within that community. We should always be asking questions about what people mean when they talk about the economy or about economic development. What do you mean? Because there's always a set of many assumptions built into to those conversations. And what even is an economy? What is what is the point of having an economy if it's not to bring about the the thriving of a community? But the, the way that economic development is, is commonly done is often in the form of tax incentives for usually companies based elsewhere, large, large companies based elsewhere, mm-hmm. to come and set up a warehouse, a distribution place. You know, there's different versions of this, but it's an extractive model of economic development that doesn't necessarily redound to the benefit of the city or the town itself in terms of tax revenue, because much of those revenues are lost uh, with the abatement process. And there may not be much skin in the game or much stake for the company who sets up in that town, because if things change, if economic circumstances change, that place can vanish and can reappear somewhere else in the country or outside of the country. And on and on down the line that the economic development strategies that are too common are not always making the place stronger, but often promoting a a more fragile local economy, ultimately. Another thing that goes along with that is this this obsession with compartmentalizing Mm -hmm. everything in our societies. And maybe from an economic development standpoint, if you're one of these people benefiting from economic development strategies, sometimes the simpler things are, the more predictable they are. Right. And you can make your formulas line up and you can apply the same one in every different place. That's a recipe for fragility for the for the community. Agreed. And, you know, the power differential that you're speaking of doesn't just end with the affected group ultimately in this situation, for example, people who are going to be seeking and, and are in need of that affordable housing. Mm-hmm. But there's also this power vacuum within our institutions that prevents any kind of meaningful dialogue, as you just alluded to. The role of the planner is very much highlighted in this piece where it talks about, you know, planners most often try to keep it you know, very technical within the confines of a technical role that's very value neutral. And really that value neutrality is something that's permeated all parts of government in a governmental system that we, we say we're taught 
was designed to encourage discourse, disagreement, confrontation, debate, you know, right. and those are largely absent from most hearings and meetings and other official settings where decisions are made or influenced. And so if we do not utilize values in these types of decisions, we can't be surprised that the outcomes are as awful as they are. Right. Because value has no seat at the table. Yeah. That so-called value neutrality just places planners, for example, in the role of priming the pump for money to be made in land development and in land ownership that ultimately finds its way unfortunately, because of the structure of financing and zoning laws into the hands of a a few wealthy and powerful entities. Right. And that, of course, is exacerbated by the fact that the definition of success that we've essentially established in these halls of power, so to speak, is agreement and finding ways to say yes and essentially abstaining from any messiness, whether Mm -hmm. that is varying opinions or objections or requests to examine something further. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I remember very well working in communities where within the organization, you know, you were known as someone that was successful in your role. If you didn't rock the boat and you didn't ask questions and you didn't push back, um, that's what success is. And so mm-hmm. the effects of what we're creating are not altogether different from what we would have expected to see 65 and 70 years ago. Right. And I think it's it's not completely unfair to say that planners often become tools of the real estate owning and speculating class, not by choice, but structurally defined. Right. I think a couple things that we should talk about in this discussion. Um, One is the role of regulations such as zoning and the way that they impact the distribution of, of land uses and um, distribution of power within a city. And then another thing which there's overlap here is this discussion of affordable housing, which is mm-hmm. one of these elephants in the room. Yeah, let's let's just bite off affordable housing. I mean, that's at the crux of, of this issue. It's it's very apparent if you take a look at the article in its entirety, or even if you just hear the pieces that we've we've excerpted yeah, yeah. for you in this episode, that the notion of affordable housing is a second class type of development type that we don't want to, God forbid, mm-hmm. utilize some of our more valuable land for. Yeah. And to that end, all too often, affordable housing projects are essentially left the scraps. Not only from a regulatory basis um, are these things made much more difficult, but secondarily, they are often left to choose from a very small inventory Mm -hmm. of properties in a community that no one wants for one reason or another. And we should draw maybe a distinction between affordable housing, like capital A, 
uh, mm-hmm. affordable housing and then the general concept of housing that's affordable, like that people can afford, not with necessarily subsidy involved. Although right. there's always subsidies hidden uh, all all throughout our, our system. That'd be another good episode. <laughs> I think it, it would be a great episode. Um, so the affordable housing capital A, that's usually based on subsidies and um, you can qualify for it based on certain income level. And, and that's what we're talking about here, right? The This is a capital A affordable housing development that is getting is getting those scraps. So that's the one discussion. But I think one of the reasons why that's like a thorny issue, there are just not enough of those units across the country to house the number of people who need units that are affordable. And the other, so the other discussion is on housing affordability writ large. And some of the Problems that I think arise with housing affordability in this country, I think they stem from a few different issues and I'm not going to be able to, we won't be able to cover them all here. Yeah. One is this notion that housing is an investment or or real estate is an investment Mm -hmm. and that home prices should always go up. They will always go up. If you buy a house, you, you know, you're never going to lose. And federal tax policy and often local land use policy they treat real estate like it's an investment asset and there's constant pressure to keep like housing prices going up. And the only people who really are going to not benefit from housing prices going up, but rather them going down, are the people who we're talking about the most marginalized, the least affluent, they're not property owning. Mm-hmm. And they often don't get a voice in town hall. Uh, so I think that's one thing and there's a whole tangle of incentives and policies, but that's just surface level. I think zoning plays a, a huge role in this. Absolutely. In, in a few different ways, and I'd love you to chime in for where I miss out. We prevent often new construction where a lot of demand exists. These are going to be like core neighborhoods um, in cities. I can identify so many neighborhoods uh, where I live in Dallas where it's a single family um, only zoning, and that's not allowed to change. Mm-hmm. Now, change is, is inevitable within cities. Otherwise it would be hard to call it a city, right? Like there's always change going on, but we selectively identify, okay, no change can go here, but then we'll like blast all the intensity into these corridors and in in these areas. And that is just going to drive up the housing prices of all kinds. Um, And it it can speed up dynamics of gentrification, which again, we'll talk about in another, in another show. Yeah. But it also like many of the zoning laws prohibit more affordable types of homes being built, mm-hmm. such as what's referred to as missing middle. Any of those housing between the the large detached single family or the, the big apartment building, they're just uh, prohibited in a lot of places. Well, not only are they prohibited in a lot of places, but I would add that we've also created, speaking again, back to processes and, and structures and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the power differential, we've also created these systems where we maybe don't say no a hundred percent of the time. We say it 95% of the time. And then we say, but you can ask for permission to do something different. Mm-hmm. And then you have to convince everyone that lives in that area yeah. that they are <laughs> yeah. on board with it. Yeah. And so it sets up this very adversarial, uh-huh. everything from the the setup of the rooms to the way the agendas are done to yeah. the publications that go out, everything leading up to that hearing is designed 
to require a sort of approval from everyone mm-hmm. else to do this. Yeah. So it further prohibits those types of affordable housing in Mm -hmm. that way as well. And typically when those discussions are being had, anything goes. It it doesn't necessarily have to be factual objections. It doesn't even have to be truthful objections. Just has to be effective. It just has to be effective. That's right. right. It's sort of like the most warped version of like, democratic decision-making possible Mm -hmm. because it seems fair to be like, let's make this a collaborative process, but it's, then you get people, I was thinking about the term not in my backyard today. And this sort of seems like it could only have emerged from North America, like the obsession with the backyard, this idea that you claim ownership over all the land around you. Suffice to say that some ugly dynamics can can emerge when we leave it up to like that kind of a process. Like, well, you're going to have to go to the neighborhood, see what they think. Not only that, it's like really expensive to get like other kinds of housing built, which maybe can lead into like the financing too, mm-hmm. because oftentimes like the financing that you can get the loan, you can really only get loans to like do stuff that a big developer would kind of do. Either the typical large single family home or the big apartment building. And these are just like large home builder formula developments. If you want to do something that falls in between that spectrum, uh, you're going to have a hard time building something different, even if you can pass the like zoning hurdles. Right. And not to mention the the financial aspect of that is, is even larger because when you are required to go through a winding sort of path to maybe get approval to build something different than the norm, Mm -hmm. you're automatically favoring larger developers because most small developers don't have the financial resources to spend money month after month waiting on that very winding road to come to completion. And so therefore you're discouraging small developers just by virtue of the the processes that you've put in place Mm -hmm. who are going to be more attracted to those types of smaller projects that larger developers don't really see as worth their time or effort. Right. And I think like this all emerges from maybe positive instincts to say, all right, the land in our community is valuable. We want to have some standards for for what gets built and we want to, you know, like, but then the people who end up being able to navigate it are just the largest developers with the deepest pockets who can, they have time, they have lawyers, they have money to navigate the process. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I think we should think about in terms of what is affordable housing is location and your location is going to drive your transportation costs. Right. And whether you have access to public transit and whether that's good public transit, whether you can walk or bike somewhere. These are all huge components of what makes affordable living. Some researchers are starting to include transportation costs and housing costs as sort of coming out of the same bucket. Yeah, so to round out the kind of affordable housing discussion, we should always be considering money flows. And Jane Jacobs is a 
very popular figure in the urban development sphere um, going back decades. And she used this term cataclysmic money and how cataclysmic money flowing into a neighborhood in particular being funneled into these you know small areas that we allow change to happen. That can just, that can completely upend an area. It can change the dynamics in terms of what is affordable and what is not. And going back to this climate gentrification where we see inequitable results, part of this we have to think of in terms of money dynamics. To kind of link this together, because we're talking about capital A affordable housing here, this might not be such a huge deal if it were the case that more affordable types of housing were more frequently allowed to be built throughout cities anywhere and everywhere. But it's not the case. And it makes cases like this matter even more. You know, I I think to some degree that's true. And I think to some degree that's not true because what it really is reflective of is the, um, the skewed attitude that we have in our society towards renters, uh, whether it's capital A affordable or just housing, that's a monthly rent that they can afford. Mm -hmm. There is a, a huge skewing of attitudes and, uh, thoughts and beliefs about people that rent versus people that own. And that's very much an elitist type of view that Mm -hmm. does not seem to have slowed down much, if at all. I think you're exactly right about that. I think we could have touched on the the environmental regulation piece of this, um, but we're running out of time. I just would like to point out that one thing that's really frustrating to me working um, often within Texas is how much the onus is on, I guess, just the developer or the particular planner to say, hey, this is going to be degrading of the natural systems. This -hmm. is going to have downstream impacts. It's like you've got to explain it to everybody involved and say, don't you care about the world your kids are living in? Don't you care about flooding? Don't you like you have the onus is on you and it's on the individual. And there aren't like state and federal laws that are strong enough to prohibit things that are just inherently damaging to the ecosystem, inherently damaging to the water flow and flood regimes. Mm -hmm. Some states have stronger regulations. I moved here from Massachusetts where things were much stronger and you had backup. You didn't have to explain why. You just had to say, this is against the law. (laughs) Right. Well, it's it's also symptomatic of this approach and attitude towards land in general. I'll sum it up as, you know, sharing something that a developer slash builder said to me once when I was working for a city and, you know, his comment was something to the effect of every property, it's just a question of do I need to bring in fill or do I need to truck out dirt? But every mm-hmm. piece of property is valuable and deserves to be developed. I think that kind of says it all, you know, Mm -hmm. when we're really just asking ourselves, what changes do we have to make to this property to make it fit the needs of what I desire to build there, rather than starting with the basic question of what is this land most appropriate for? Yeah. What is our relationship to the land? This is nothing new, by the way, especially on this continent, where you can go back and see that when uh, European settlers arrived, they looked at the forest and they saw logging opportunities. They saw timber. And soon enough, forests were stripped and ecosystems were laid bare. And this is, this is nothing new. We just keep doing the same thing. When we don't think in systems, when we think in 
variables. It's either a one or a zero, right? It's I got to fill or I got to cut. That leaves us with a much more expensive mess to clean up in terms of ecosystem services, not to mention all the other things. People living in areas often referred to as the bottoms, right? Many cities have those places where, you know, well, it's just going to flood all the time and you're kind of screwed. Yeah. It's this idea that the wealth exists in manipulating the property to be whatever you want it to be. And that has a much higher value than actually preserving land um, and understanding the value that that might have. And it's also very much this looking inward to I'm looking within the boundaries of my property. That's all I'm concerned about Uh rather than looking outward and having an awareness of how things affect others in the community. Frankly, it's a very self-centered type of approach. It really is. And it's why having a more systemic understanding of the world we live in is critical. It can be difficult, but ultimately we inherit, I think, thought processes about the world from those that came before us. And there have been many societies throughout human history where the prevailing narrative was a, one of, that was much more in harmony with the the surroundings and understanding the interconnectedness of all things. Mm -hmm. And here, the interconnectedness of housing and transportation and ecology and money and power, like on down the line, it's always made apparent when you dig deeper and, and strip back the layers. Well, anything else to say about, about this? Did we cover it all? We covered enough for now. We covered enough. (laughs) Enough (laughs) to give you people what you want. (laughs) Hopefully we provoked some thought and maybe there's some good dialogue that's created. All right. Well, I think that's another successful extra credit episode in the books. AJ, thank you for joining me again today. Of course. This was a lot of fun. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on social media at WeBuiltItPod. We will be back in a couple weeks with a regular episode, a plain old regular episode of We Built It (laughs) That Way. The original. (laughs) So until next time, see you later. Bye. I got the wish bar blues on